0: Hello and Happy New Year, and welcome to Well-Tempered, the podcast about the smart, creative, and crafty women in the chocolate industry. I'm Lauren Hynek. I thrive on sharing the stories of others, building community, and honing my craft as a chocolate maker at Weekend Chocolate. For the first episode of this year, I wanted to start with a bang, and that much I can promise with this interview featuring Emily Stone, CEO of Uncommon Cacao as supply chain disruptors, they link premium and craft chocolate makers with their partner farmers at origin. At the time of recording, they work in six countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. We focus our chat around the ways in which chocolate makers, especially those starting out, can have a better understanding of sourcing details. As I admit early on in this episode, looking back at when I first needed beans, I was limited in my ability to grasp the extent of the specialty cacao supply chain, roasting techniques that would perform with limited samples, thus making discerning decisions about such a big financial and professional purchase for a one-woman company in its infancy. I hope this type of reporting will serve many of you, and offer insights into how you may become more educated buyers, business owners, and chocolate peers. Please share this with someone that can find value in it, who's entering the industry, or curious to do so. As always, your support means so much to me. Thank you for listening. And if you find value in this, I would sincerely appreciate a review on iTunes. I know that all podcasters say the same, but it really does make a huge difference. Let's move on to the show. Do you want to start off with something like that to talk about sort of the progression you've seen in the years since launching Maya Mountain and Uncommon Cacao? Sure. I certainly want to get a sense of where you came into this, because as we had just mentioned, you're a pioneer in this field. You're now full time, essentially, when you're not traveling or doing conferences or elsewhere in the world. But you now spend your time primarily in Guatemala, working literally side by side with the relationships and partnerships that you've launched
1: so I have been primarily in Guatemala for the last four years, but I actually just moved up to California and I'll be primarily here for the next several years. Cool. Okay.
0: Didn't know that. It's been since 2011. Ten. Ten. Okay. And now we're in 18. Okay. So this is eight years of your life now. Yeah. And you've seen a lot of changes in the industry. Give us a little background into who you are, a quick elevator pitch of how this came to be, and we'll get into a bit of the nitty gritty here after
1: that. Really, the idea for everything that Uncommon Cacao is now started with just a meeting in the offices of Taza Chocolate back in 2010. I was a frustrated shareholder activist, I used to work in socially responsible investing and That's sort of a weird term, but it it basically meant I worked for a company that leveraged its investments in corporations to push sustainability agendas. So I was meeting with different boards of directors and management of multinational corporations to talk about sustainability issues. And I was working on chocolate um, with some multinational companies. And I kept running into this challenge of basically fair trade certified supply chains being the only option for impact or sustainability or improvement of human rights and environmental practices in the supply chain. And I just couldn't quite grasp my head around the impact that it was having. So I reached out to Alex at Taza Chocolate, who was um, doing direct trade. He was the first chocolate maker who was talking at least about how they were doing direct trade and setting quality standards and then paying more money for better quality cacao. And that sounded just super interesting to me. So I went to go meet with Alex and um, he had just been to Belize on vacation and had gotten to know the cacao industry there a little bit. He basically shared with me a different side of the challenges of the cacao industry that I wasn't as familiar with working in the activist side, which was that he was having a really hard time finding high quality cacao that was certified organic and that was designed to be a, a long term stable relationship. He just wasn't able to find that working through the typical commodity channels. I was so inspired by that, I actually decided to quit my job in shareholder activism and social responsible investing that same day. And two weeks later we were on a plane to Belize. So it happened super quickly you know, the industry looked so different at that time. There were a handful of bean-to-bar chocolate makers. There was this nebulous small group called the Craft Chocolate Makers of America that had just started. Taza was in it, Mast Brothers, Amano, Patrick Chocolate. Pioneers of our industry were the only guys around at that point. So it was this really new concept of bean-to-bar craft chocolate. There really weren't supply chains set up to serve these, these new makers. The existing Makers were mostly sourcing from large plantations, um, like the famous Bertil-Akkison's plantation in Madagascar. But there weren't a lot of smallholder farms that sort of had access to this market and that were able to achieve the quality transparency that these makers needed in order to turn the cacao into chocolate bars. Um, and that that was the challenge that Alex was talking to me about, was just how, how hard it was for him to find these sources. And so I sort of realized there was just this huge gap of innovation and pushing of boundaries that was needed in the cacao supply chain and relying on the certification model to achieve that innovation and solve these problems was not going to be the complete picture because of the way that certifications are structured. It's it's not about quality and it's not about these sort of specialty production operations. That was what was really exciting to me at the time was just seeing this, you know, growth of craft chocolate and Uh, the potential that it had to be a driver of huge change um, at origin for smallholder farmers in particular. Wow,
0: that's great. Thank you for sharing that. And certainly, I think there can't be one without the other. When you were starting in those initial days of Uncommon Cacao, and I guess at that time, it was structured to be Maya Mountain, is that correct?
1: It's a little confusing, but Uncommon Cacao was the first company that was started. It used to be called Moho Coco, which is another funny story, maybe for another time, um, of what that meant in the local language of Belize when we were talking about uh, Moho Coco. But yeah, Uncommon Cacao was originally started as a holding company. So it was the business in the U.S. through which all investments were made to start Maya Mountain. So My Mountain Cacao has been majority owned by Uncommon Cacao since its inception. It was the first operation that we started as a group of founders.
0: Okay, thanks for clarifying that. So just to give everyone a premise of a little bit what this episode will be geared towards, I'm happy to admit some of my faults and some of my learnings throughout being on my chocolate making journey. Just when I was getting started back in the spring of 2016, I was literally typing into Google something like cacao beans sourcing. And Meridian Cacao, Uncommon Cacao, and I believe Tizano was the other that was coming up as one of the kind of go-to places. And Chocolate Alchemy, of course, for smaller purchases, where someone who is initiating a small-scale bean-to-bar company could source. So I went to you and had, I'm sure, some of the probably now naive questions that a lot of people might ask in their first go. So this episode, it will be manifold, but one of the goals is for those who are listening who might not have gone through the sourcing or purchasing of cacao thus far, or maybe are just in the early stages, what is that relationship going to be or what can they expect through talking with someone like Emily? That sounds great.
1: I'm really excited. And to be honest as well, my journey also started with some semi-hilarious Google searching. Actually, the way that I originally found Taza when I was starting this research around, you know, the need for innovation in the supply chain was Googling chocolate Central America, (laughs) emailing a ton of people and casting a wide net of who's out there, who's doing what. Hopefully this episode will allow for less meandering Google searching and answering of some important questions that can help people just get to work faster buying cocoa beans and making awesome chocolate.
0: Yeah, that would be, certainly be our goal. And I think, you know, it's really interesting this time we're living in right now where the craft movement seems to be booming, especially within the United States, but now internationally. And we have so much more accessibility to conversations like these on this podcast or other media outlets. Again, just really happy that you're here and that you get to share all the things that you've learned in the last near decade in this business. Let's just kick it off with more along the same lines of what we were just chatting about I'm sure that you get inundated with emails and calls and, you know, you're not alone in this, certainly. But what do you wish if you could give some advice to people that were researching this topic before reaching out to you? What should they know about Uncommon Cacao or a similar company or what maybe are some of the vocabulary terms or even just concepts that would be most valuable to them before initiating and receiving samples or having some of those really important negotiation chats?
1: Definitely. And thank you so much, Lauren, for having me on. This is really exciting to be joining you. I'm so impressed with all the work you're doing at Well-Tempered and the movement that you are helping to build and nurture. There's a really wide range of existing information that people come into the chocolate industry with. I think bean-to-bar chocolate as a whole or craft chocolate you know, is just attracting professionals and artists and craftsmen from so many different backgrounds which is fantastic because it's bringing such a diversity of perspectives and um, expertise into this, you know, really fast growing and young market. But when we're talking about supply chains and cacao farming, it's much less new, right? So a lot of the farmers who are growing cacao, especially the ones in in Uncommon Cacao's network in Belize and Guatemala, which are, you know, indigenous Maya communities. They've been farming cacao for generations. It's played a really important role in their culture and in their day-to-day life today. So cacao is not as new. And for farmers, cacao is hard work and it is an investment of their time. For us as Uncommon Cacao, you know, we really see ourselves as a partner to farmers and equally as a partner to chocolate makers. So we're this sort of new kind of intermediary, this new kind of supply chain company that. You know, we don't shy away from calling ourselves an intermediary and acknowledging this important role that we play in sort of connecting these dots between this really sort of um, uh, longstanding and uh, important economic um, uh, industry for farmers and this sort of fast-growing, really experimental, innovative new industry. So what that means for us is that when we're helping chocolate makers buy cacao, we have to consider a lot of different factors. We help the chocolate makers as well think through sort of the the factors of the supply chain that will be important to their business. So what that means is, you know, beyond flavor profiles and bean characteristics, which are super important for chocolate makers to think about before they make a purchase. Do I want to produce a chocolate that's going to be fruity? Is that what I think my customers will enjoy? Am I going to be making milk chocolates? What kind of a bean do I think would pair well with milk chocolate? All of that aside, another important piece of it is just the logistics and sort of structure of the supply chain that you'll be tapping into. Are you going to want all of your cacao from a certain harvest? Are you going to want um, cacao to be available for you throughout the year? Or is it okay if it's only available at certain times throughout the year? What kind of a price point are you interested in paying? How exclusive do you want this cacao to be? Sort of what are your future growth projections for your use of the beans? These are all different factors that we try and talk about really clearly and transparently with makers when we first start these conversations. Um, Because that just helps us be the best partner to makers and also to farmers, where we're really setting up relationships that are designed to function and serve both ends of the supply chain equally. Those are great things.
0: So maybe we could take a couple minutes to parse out some of those elements and walk through them. I'm thinking, for instance, on the harvest piece. So many regions, to my familiarity, go through multiple harvests a year, but generally like a larger one that might last a few months and then a secondary one. When you say that a maker might be able to access both harvests or multiple seasons, so to speak, what might they expect between the fluctuation of flavor or even, I don't know, what, what sort of consistency are you seeking on your end with your partners at Origin?
1: It really depends on the origin. So much of the harvest dynamics depend on rainfall and climate characteristics, and that means that they also can shift pretty dramatically from year to year. You know, a great example of this was the Dominican Republic a couple years ago, essentially skipped their second season or their lower harvest. There were a number of challenges that were related to that, both in terms of flavor, bean size, and just availability of cacao to fill contracts. But typically we are looking for as much consistency as possible from harvest to harvest, you know there is typically in many of in all the countries we work with. There's a larger harvest in Belize and Guatemala, for example. That's typically from February or so until the end of May or beginning of June, um, and then a second harvest that's typically you know October, November. And so for makers, what this means is that. If you're working with a bean, for example, the Oco Caribe in the Dominican Republic, that's a high volume origin. There is significant volume coming out of both of those harvests. You can expect a fair amount of consistency from season to season and from harvest to harvest. Uh, Gualberto and Adriano at Oco Caribe really put a lot of effort and expertise into ensuring that consistency and flavor. Whereas, you know, a different bean like the Beniano from Bolivia, which is a cacao that has a much shorter harvest period and is much less available, it's a much rarer bean, Um, there can be significant variation both between harvests and from year to year. We did actually see that this year with a slightly different flavor profile in that cacao this year than we had seen in previous years. I would suggest for most makers, especially if you're trying out a new bean, and you know we tell you this is a bean that's either really consistently available and a high volume origin, and you can expect a lot of consistency from this bean, then that's a that's a bean you can feel pretty good about ordering sort of future harvests of without needing to sample ahead of time. Whereas a cacao that's less available, maybe more rare, just shorter harvest season, maybe not even having a second harvest, then. I would suggest, you know, you as a maker may want to sample that bean from each harvest before committing to purchase it. Just making sure that it continues to fit the flavor profile and expectations that you have for the chocolate you want to produce.
0: Awesome. And just giving my two cents here, from my perspective, when I was entering the sample phase, I didn't even consider the concept of creating anything other than single origin bars. So that didn't go into my R and D of if I added milk, what would happen? If I thought about creating more, you know, jammy notes with the addition of dehydrated fruits, what might that give to the final flavors? I think it's more or less industry standard that you receive about two kilos of each sample that you request. And I really think if you're interested in more of that research and development phase, it's better to go for buying a larger quantity up front. I'm not talking about a bag per se, but just maybe 10 pounds to have more of the idea of play and the idea of what would happen if I did this, because you're going to want to experiment with various roast profiles that can dramatically change even the same origin that you're working with. Absolutely. And then within that, Emily, if you would just also detail, you mentioned and touched briefly that climate can be, have an effect on the final product and, you know, so can just the structure of the community that you're working with. And I think a lot of us are still interested in learning like really what that impact is. And you guys talk a lot about radical transparency, transparent trade, and also just this concept of paying a farm gate price that is much higher than the commodity market. Would you detail
1: that a bit further? On the climate piece and how that affects flavor profile, I'm not a scientist. There is some great science on this, though. Dan O'Doherty is always the person I recommend people talk to when they're interested in digging deeper into sort of the agronomic and terroir-related impacts on flavor from cacao. So highly recommend getting in touch with that guy. And then in terms of sort of the structure of the community and the importance of transparency in pricing and in supply chains, we see... Sort of transparency and equal communication back and forth with farmers and makers as absolutely critical to achieving quality. This can take a lot of different forms because the way that we communicate with farmers and share information and, and provide feedback differs dramatically if we're working with a single farmer, single family estate uh, like Finca Chimel in Guatemala, or if we're working with um, a group of associations like La Chua. Uh, Or if we're working with independent farmers, as is the case at Maya Mountain in Belize. The critical piece of quality in such a young industry like specialty cacao is making sure that feedback is delivered really quickly um, and it's delivered in a way that those who are responsible for these different aspects of quality can really understand. So, for example, you know, one aspect of quality that we invested a lot of time in improving at Maya Mountain about three years ago was the harvesting of perfectly ripe cacao. This was not an area that we had sort of focused on in our first years at Maya Mountain. We were buying wet cacao in buckets, uh, which meant that a lot of the juice was staying with the beans. And we had a harvest, I think it was in 2013, that was a little bit off. It just didn't quite taste right. And we weren't sure what was going on. And actually, Dan came down and worked with us a bit at Maya Mountain. He was like, one of the challenges is around harvesting of ripe pods. There were some under ripe pods that we're getting in um, or some overripe pods that we're getting in to the fermentation boxes of wet cacao. And basically what that does is it affects the Brix constant or the sugars that are available for the fermentation and does of course affect the final flavor. And so we had to run a ton of workshops and trainings across our supply chain with the farmers themselves to educate on best practices in harvesting Uh, we did that the first year the second year we then actually started to reject cacao and then the third year we not only rejected cacao we paid lower prices for different qualities of beans so we uh, trained our team as well in the identification of different qualities of wet cacao and then we also changed our buying from buying in buckets to buying in sacks which uh, you have no idea just how many conversations we had to have with farmers and with our team around that shift um, it's an example of one of the things that, on the chocolate-making side of the supply chain equation, you know, we're often not thinking about the impacts of quality improvements on farmers, um, because what that meant for the farmers was that in order to get a higher quality, which meant selling really perfectly ripe cacao, freshly harvested in drainable bags rather than in these buckets, meant that they were selling less weight, which meant that we had to pay more to make up for that difference. That ties into the transparency piece because it's often the case in these supply chains and, you know, Specialty Coffee certainly has examples of this as well, where there's such a laser focus on quality and on flavor that we sometimes forget that, you know, this is a farmed product that's the results of extremely hard work from people who are often living with much less resources than we are and are just doing their best to, to do a great job. It's important for makers to understand both sort of the positive and the challenging impacts of the supply chain and of these new requirements and new advances in quality. It's hard for me to think of a quality improvement or a sustainability improvement, for that matter, that doesn't cost more money. So whether it's you know, the straining of cacao or if it's uh, making sure that only the the freshest, ripest pods are harvested. And discarding those pods that are not perfectly ripe, or if it's, you know, the timing and intensity of moving cacao from one fermentation box to another and the amount of people that it takes to do those moves on time and correctly drying. You know, we have multi-stage drying and almost all of our origins, which requires moving cacao from you know, different sort of drying setups under a greenhouse out to direct sun and then back in again. You know, all of these are really labor intensive and critical pieces of the supply chain that allow specialty cacao to happen. We feel that it's important as specialty cacao grows, as craft chocolate grows, we don't want to all be sort of in the dark on this. And then we all sort of wake up five or 10 years from now. And we find out that because of these you know, these changes in quality and this insistence on keeping the price stable despite improvements in quality or even lowering the price, as we're starting to see now, and still expecting dramatic improvements in quality, that as a result of that, we're not really working with smallholder farmers anymore. We're really only working with the states because they're the only ones who can afford to make these investments in the, you know, machinery, equipment, and people that are required to do this work. Producing specialty cacao is expensive and improving quality and really taking feedback and putting it into practice is hard. I've seen the challenges of really face-to-face after working directly with farmers for the last seven or so years in Belize and Guatemala and making these investments ourselves as a company, working with farmers to make co-investments, training farmers, listening to their honestly very sort of realistic concerns around how sustainable some of these you know, new practices and improvements are. And I think, you know, our role as a supply chain company is to have a lot of these hard conversations with everyone. And so the transparency for us, radical transparency is a tool for those conversations. It's not saying we're perfect and we have, you know, the best pricing and everyone, we set the standard for pricing and everyone should pay their farmers this much because that's not what it's about at all. It's really about opening a conversation and having tools in which we can say, listen, this was the cost of production for farmers. This was the farm gate price. This was the export price. This was what was needed in order to be able to achieve the post-harvest quality from the farmers, you know, hard work harvesting the beans. And then this is what it costs us to to run the business to sell it. We've sort of taken the decision or really, yeah, I guess just just decided to stick our necks out there and say, listen, this is what specialty cacao means by the numbers um, when we're looking at at the costs. And I think we have a lot more work to do to contextualize those numbers and help people really understand sort of where are these different levers, uh, both on the farmer side and on the processor side of, you know, the cost of improving quality and the cost of achieving that consistency. And so much of it as well is a volume game. It would be ideal if we could just say, okay, you know, this is the baseline for these costs, as we grow and achieve huge increases in the volume that we're producing, you will become more efficient. And so prices can go down. That said in the current market dynamic, you know, despite the fast growth of craft chocolate and bean-to-bar chocolate, I don't know any origin right now that's able to grow to the scale they need in order to be sort of as cost efficient as possible in these different activities. So again, it's just, it's another sign that we're really early as an industry and I think it's because of that that transparency is even more important for all of us uh, as we have these conversations and sort of decide what our best practices is and how should we be paying farmers and the supply chain fairly for that work.
0: Yes. I'm so grateful for the work that they do and for the work that you're doing and for bringing this to light. If people are wondering maybe where they can find some of this information or what you're talking about between a farm gate price and an export price, your recent 2016 transparency report is online available without paywall, and it's therefore something that all of us can can see and read and acknowledge. It sounds like that there's perhaps some unsolicited feedback or at this very early stage, the infancy of craft chocolate, we haven't been able to maintain that feedback arrives to you or to origin in a way that might be interpreted correctly, or as you would so desire in the future. And I'm also just curious if we're lacking something, if we're lacking a certain sense of empathy to understand the costs at farm level, or what we could do a better job of as makers.
1: I actually think we we get a lot of great feedback from makers, and makers are... Amazing at sharing, you know, their perspective, especially as they're trying out samples and uh, making decisions on what beans to purchase. We get so much valuable information from makers who say, Listen, yeah, this bean was fantastic. It was so round and balanced. I found this roast profile really worked. Or they say, you know, we loved the cleanliness of these beans. And then we also get feedback saying, you know, this was just too acidic or it was too astringent. Maybe, you know, what was the background on the fermentation or the drying in this harvest? And all of that, you know, together is super helpful information um, across our supply chain. We have um, a woman on our team named Stasi, who is our director of operations and sourcing. And she is responsible for making sure all of that feedback is communicated clearly and quickly down to origin. That's done through a number of different approaches. And then, we actually do check in on sort of the impact and responses to that feedback and how that's being implemented as a full team every week. So there's this constant quality back and forth and conversation that's happening internally. And that's always being fed by feedback from makers. So just the more feedback, the better. Always let us know what you're finding in the beans, what's great, what's not great, because um, all of that does help us help us grow. And then I think, I think actually bean-to-bar chocolate does have great empathy for the supply chain, more so than almost any other industry um, that I can imagine. There's so much genuine respect for farmers and attention to the supply chain in this industry. It's really clear that farmers understand the importance of the stability of the supply chain for their own businesses, for their own ability to make great chocolate, um, and that's fantastic. I think one of the challenges is just that we're all still growing and you know, none of us are really at scale. Just understanding the dynamic between volume and quality and price so that we end up creating that stability and creating the right expectations for farmers and makers alike on sort of where this is all going and what we all hope to be building uh, together as a community and as an industry.
0: What would you say to someone who might be still on the very micro level, but is interested in accessing beans of a high caliber? And they're curious to know what their impact is when perhaps in reality, it might be more logistics costs than are getting back to origin.
1: So you mean in terms of like a maker who's buying maybe 10 pounds or so? or even
0: up to a couple of bags, but just this concept. I mean, one thing I would like to explore is when you talk about seeing someone at this final level of scale, what maybe that might mean in metric tons. And then on the other end of that, on the other side, you know, I'm a perfect example of this. I have three bags of cacao. So about, I don't know, turned out to be about 500 pounds in total. And one of the reasons that I was interested in launching the community well-tempered in this podcast to celebrate my peers is that I didn't feel like I was able to put enough of a financial impact at origin with that purchase, so I wanted to do something more. But I'm sure there's a lot of other people that at their stage in their business, that that's all they can do is buy cacao. Not necessarily to ask, is that enough? Because that's a very subjective question, but just (laughs) what might they be able to take home as I'm doing X, Y, Z?
1: It's just, again, another signal of how unique and special this industry is that that's what's on people's minds, you know, that they are so actively thinking about how they can create impact and growth and momentum for farmers through their business in the U.S. or Europe or wherever it may be. That's just, it's so awesome. And so I want to just, I want to celebrate that. And I think, you know, for us at Uncommon Cacao, we work with about 150 small chocolate makers. You know, it's sort of this thing where there's no I in team. Um, there is such value in this community and in the diversity of makers who are coming together to build this industry that I actually think it's better for farmers to be working with a lot of small makers than to just be relying on one sort of behemoth large company. Because when we have this growing and very alive industry of craft chocolate and all of these makers that are Increasing in their purchases year over year, even if they're starting with one bag or two bags and growing to three bags and then four bags, all of that together is truly making a difference and has launched a number of new specialty cacao origins in really important regions around the world, whether it's East Africa or Central America, South America, as versus when there's just sort of one large chocolate maker like a Mars uh, or a Hershey, which certainly has the you know the potential to create really large-scale impact, but that maker then has too much power you know if they decide to then drop the origin or move on to a different set of farmers um, their priorities change or their sales were low so their budget runs up then the farmers are left hanging at scale and so i think part of the work we hope to do is uncommon is to truly create sort of a platform via you know the aggregation of, of so many of of you guys buying these smaller volumes We hope that our transparency report helps by giving you that information so that you can then say, I'm a part of this. My business is, you know, supporting these farmers. Here are the numbers. Here are the impacts on families. And here is my chocolate that's made with that. And this is my supply chain. You know, for so many chocolate makers just starting out, even as they're growing and, and, you know, becoming large relatively within the craft chocolate world, there's not necessarily the budget to hire your own sourcing manager or sourcing director. And so it often falls on the shoulders of the founder or the owner of the company to sort out what beans to buy and, you know, where to find them and how much to pay and how many do they need? And, you know, what are their projections for buying for the next 12 months? It's a hard job. And so you know, we really respect all of these makers who are simultaneously innovating and and doing R&D to develop the most amazing chocolates they can for their market and then simultaneously, like, really geeking out on Origins and cacao and fermentation processes and drying. It's just, it's so cool. And we're here to support that. So, you know, we really hope that makers consider us their in-house sourcing team. They consider us their sort of partners in whether it's just, information sharing or like a sounding board for different ideas around sourcing you know this is this is what we do and and we love it Um, we love the opportunity to be this sort of connector of these different worlds and so i think if there are ways that we can help small makers feel a, a bigger part of this supply chain and um, you know, whether it's doing a specific project, which we've done with a number of, of smaller makers, we've helped them invest, you know, whether it's a small grant that they make directly to a farmer association to improve some of the quality infrastructure or if it's some trainings that they want to run um, or even just going down origin and visiting and the producers. You know, there are so many different ways to sort of design our relationship with you to create the impact, the story and the product that you need for your company. Really, we're just at the beginning of sort of the growth of these micro-batch chocolate makers. We're going to see a lot more of them in the next several years, and we're here to be a partner in, in thinking through how to best aggregate you all together and, and help you create this impact that is larger than your size, so that as you grow into sourcing more cacao and you know potentially wanting more origins, that you are able to talk clearly with your customers, with your partners, with your employees, et cetera, around your history working in a supply chain and uh, your goals for your sourcing relationships.
0: Wow, there is just so much to unpack from all of that. It definitely is a very exciting present that we're all living right now. And I think that lends to a really unbelievable future of where this could go and the potential that we all have. I love that you're mentioning that there's this idea of aggregation and that there can be commonalities within what might feel sometimes like individual work. But what I glean from that also, I think, is this potential for us to create some common language when you're talking about how you tell those stories, what goes on your packaging, you know, how did Columbia, this origin, come to be in the last few months, and, and then what is parlayed on to the consumer? Because I think we all geek out in this format of how fascinating it all is, but ultimately we need to get this final end customer to, to share the story with us. Do you have any ideas, and I'm sure you've already done this in your years of work, but maybe with us being at a very pivotal point in the industry now of how we tell a better story?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it's something that we are thinking about a lot um, here at Uncommon. You know, one of our challenges is that we similarly geek out constantly around fermentation and drying and quality and transparent trade and pricing. And we often just expect that people, whether it's makers or consumers or retailers, will be sort of similarly on that geek out level, as I think, you know, a lot of us are, be able to clearly communicate that to others. And it's just not the case. You know, we do need a shared language. We do need more clear Guidelines and frameworks that can help all of us tell this amazing story to the public and grow. I don't have any answers yet. I do know that Uncommon Cacao wants to be positioning ourselves in this next year to be a much more helpful partner um, on that front for makers. You know, I think a lot of makers are asked the very common question of, you know, are you certified fair trade? And if they're not, then why not? Um, and so I think you know we need to do a better job of helping makers answer that question, um, helping really tell the story of these farmer relationships and how quality is the driver of impact. And that transparency and pricing alongside that quality is the key to building these long-term stable supply chains that will drive the growth of this industry. You know, I think there's a lot of work left to do and we'd certainly love to be, you know, a part of conversations that are with makers thinking through the real sort of consumer facing side of how can we better support you and how can we best be providing you the resources and photos and and materials, marketing language to talk about what you need to do in order to to convince your consumers that, you know, you are making the right decisions and, and all of this is leading to a revolutionary and really exciting new future for chocolate and for cacao farmers.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about that future piece. What gets you excited about the next eight years of Uncommon
1: Cacao? I think we're in for a wild ride, <laughs> to be honest. It's been... um so there's been so many different changes in the industry over the last five years, especially there's just been this explosion of of new makers and that's, you know, continuing to happen. And we're seeing just innovation happening across all different segments of, of the chocolate industry at this point. I think we're in a challenging moment right now where about five years ago, the large industry, large chocolate made a series of decisions to market a message around the world is running out of chocolate. Uh, You may remember those headlines from, you know, that a million metric ton deficit expected by 2020. And what that messaging did, This, you know, showed up in Bloomberg News and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And what it did was it actually encouraged a lot more planting of cacao, focus on productivity and increases in yields as the sort of, one-size-fits-all solution for farmers across the board to improve their incomes and also the investment of a number of entrepreneurs and equity funds, et cetera, into specialty cacao in particular. And so a lot of more origins started, a lot of yields on a lot of farms and through a lot of origins grew. Uh, Farmers went back to cacao after maybe having left it for other crops in years prior to that. And so we are in a situation of pretty serious oversupply. Uh, which I think most people probably know about. The commodity market for cocoa essentially collapsed uh, at the end of 2016. saw prices drop by about a third and they are expected to stay there for the next several years. This is creating a, a challenging dynamic across all of the specialty cacao origins that I know. Not only are And this is not just sort of within the Uncommon cacao Network, but through conversations I've had with a lot of the other origins in this industry, you know, all of us are facing a really challenging moment. The global context for pricing has gone down dramatically. So whereas, you know, when we were all sort of first starting or developing our businesses for the last five or seven years, $3,000 was sort of expected to be the bottom line market price for, for a lot of us. And that's now dropped down as low as essentially $1,800 in recent months, even a little bit lower than that. And it's expected to stay at around $2,000 for the future. That just shifts the way that a lot of buyers are thinking about pricing cacao. And so it is creating downward price pressure, I think, across the board. Not only that, but because there's so much oversupply, a lot of makers are choosing to drop, and I'm not not saying necessarily in the craft sector, but I think just in sort of premium chocolate around around the board, you know, we're seeing chocolate makers choose price over relationships, essentially. And so there's some chocolate manufacturers who have dropped origins that they've been working with for a really long time to go for a cheaper bean because the market has those available now. I think that's a scary moment for a lot of us who believe in the power of long-term relationships and stability to improve supply chains for makers and for farmers. And it's not like the cost of cacao is actually getting any cheaper just because the market dropped. The costs to produce cacao are certainly not getting cheaper and are actually growing in a number of countries as, as these countries develop and, you know, with inflation, et cetera. And so I think, you know, The concept of decommoditization is critical right now it's important for i think all of us as a supply chain especially in in the craft chocolate sector to sort of recognize that we are separate from industrial chocolate we are separate from industrial cacao and that if we want to see a future in which smallholder specialty cacao origins are possible it's important that we sort of maintain business as usual and don't just look to the commodity market price as the benchmark and expect that all prices should drop accordingly. So I think that's sort of one challenging thing that's happening right now, and it'll be interesting to see over the next couple of years, during which time these low prices are expected to continue, just sort of what the impact is on craft chocolate and on specialty cacao. But then beyond that, there are a lot of really exciting trends outside of the commodity market that certainly will be interesting to see what happens in those as well. One is that we're definitely starting to see cacao buyers and chocolate manufacturers move beyond chocolate bars as the only product that they're selling. Clusters are really in right now. Most of the sort of premium chocolate companies like Theo and Alter Eco, uh, Taza, they're doing these sort of clusters and bark products. Innovative moves like that are going to be critical for us in craft chocolate as well. The fixation on the, you know, single origin dark chocolate bar has been helpful for our industry in some ways to Educate consumers and introduce people to the amazing diversity of flavors and possibilities uh, in chocolate, but it's just not where consumers are at. We're not gonna grow as an industry if we're only making chocolate bars. So it's really exciting to see, you know, these new products coming out. I think it's exciting to see the growth of drinking chocolate and hot chocolate, you know, companies like Mutari, who are doing this here in California. We need to be, I think, finding more ways to bring cacao to the masses. It also means making more milk chocolate, making sure that we sort of understand our markets and where most consumers are right now is that they are, they may be scared of dark chocolate. I hear all the time friends or chocolate eaters out there will hear what I do for a living. They're like, oh, cacao, that's cool. But I don't, you know, I don't really like the kind of chocolate that you guys make or I don't like good chocolate. I only like milk chocolate. And it's so frustrating to hear that because there's amazing milk chocolate out there. Companies like Chiquesad and French Broad and Cyrene and Soma, Zaxx, all these companies are making like phenomenal award-winning milk chocolates, but there's still this sort of consumer perception that that's wrong or, you know, milk chocolate is not good and the only fine chocolate is dark chocolate. And so if they don't like dark chocolate, they can't eat good chocolate. And so I think we have to like sort of break open that consumer perception and, create more products that meet consumers where they're at right now. And so I think if if we as an industry can do that, then we'll be able to grow our businesses and our sector of the market faster and help origins and supply chains overcome this more sort of challenging global market situation right now
0: yeah i mean it couldn't have come at a better time that you're saying all this because around uh, the end of the year beginning of january let's say they came out again with these kind of scare tactic articles about a global crisis and the extinction of chocolate by 2050 maybe milk chocolate has that persona of always being you know around that two dollar three dollar mark we're able as craft chocolate makers to package it nicely With that, quote unquote, it's good chocolate story, as we've been discussing, perhaps we can leverage the, well, they don't really go hand in hand, the extinction of chocolate and milk chocolate. But there is just another element of like how much education we have to do across the board. It doesn't end with an article. It also continues into your entire production line. And maybe it's no irony at this point that some of the craft companies that are able to scale up right now, granted, they might have been in the business for some longer time, but Dandelion and French Broad Chocolate, as you mentioned, they seem to be growing and they offer a wide diversity of options. They have that cafe space, so they make connection within their community locally and incorporate cacao into many elements of their business?
1: I think we have to remember just all of the different potential applications of chocolate. And so many people interact with chocolate on a daily basis in the form of cookies or chocolate chips in their trail mix or, you know, an afternoon snack of a chocolate croissant or whatever it might be. You know, there's so many opportunities out there and definitely, you know, French Broad um, and Dandelion stand out as companies that saw that opening in their markets and have done such a phenomenal job educating their local communities and broader markets around, you know, you don't have to use the industrial chocolate in that croissant or in that cookie. You can use amazing chocolate and with a great story and a great flavor. I would love to see more companies doing that and it can be a slow buildup over time, but I think we will see, you know, what's happened in in the coffee industry with these specialty roasters becoming these sort of hometown institutions. Um, I hope that we see the same in chocolate. And I think there are a lot of companies that are really well positioned to be that for their cities and their communities in the future.
0: Well, thank you for standing behind us and, and helping us through this journey as well. Do you have anything you'd like to close on or any other topics that you'd just like to touch on before we
1: finish with our two questions? I guess just one important piece is just to make sure that, and I sort of talked about this at the beginning, but I want to make sure that especially as we're sort of entering into this phase of both industry growth on the chocolate maker end and significant challenges on the cacao supply chain end, that we don't sort of over-romanticize the cacao supply chain. One of your questions was, what does cacao mean to you? And to me, cacao is equivalent with hard work. It's a beautiful plant. It's delicious. It has so many different meanings in different cultures. It promotes conservation. It has, you know, cacao does have all of these really beautiful and magical aspects to it. But at the end of the day, it's just it's people doing hard work. Farming is hard work. Fermentation is hard work. Drying is hard work. The same way that making chocolate is really hard work. I just want to make sure that as we sort of move into this phase of deeper growth and, and deeper connectivity across the supply chain, that we all appreciate each other's partners. And we make commitments to each other to remain focused on these long term goals that we all have of building a revolutionary new industry, of creating a catalytic future for cacao farming families because of the work we're doing to grow this new vision of what chocolate means and how it can be accepted and loved by consumers. I think we're still so at the very beginning of that, and we all have to, I think, hold on tight to each other and stay really transparent both about our challenges and our visions for growth in order to see that future unfold and be able to look back in 20, 40 years from now and feel so much pride, satisfaction, and excitement around all that we've achieved together as an industry.
0: Very well said. And if we have 99% of the market to go, then we do have a lot of hard work ahead of us. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah you did just answer what does cacao mean to you and would you now and hopefully i will not sway you but i have here with me a a 77 percent polo cheek from violet sky chocolate that i was just snacking on during our call but this last piece of the interview is to ask what three chocolates you would take to the cosmos and that might be origin specific or something you just can't live without like chocolate trail mix (laughs) or whatever it is that you would want (laughs) to take to the the other side of the universe
1: yum the polo cheek bars are like so delicious across the board fresco also makes an amazing pull a cheek bar and poletta bean i hope you're enjoying that bar let's see the three chocolates i would bring to the cosmos this was fun to think about one would definitely be a raca bar Raka does not roast their cacao but they do have this incredible process that creates this really smooth and just across the board delicious i haven't had a bad chocolate bar from raca I think just because they so powerfully capture the flavors of cacao, that would definitely be up there. They just put out a new bar series for their January 1st nibs of a couple different Guatemala origins. Maybe bring those because, you know, these Guatemala beans are characteristic of the past of chocolate, of the, you know, Mayan history. And they're so perfectly presented in the Rocca Bars, such an unprocessed form. And then another bar that I would bring would probably be Dick Taylor's Belize Bar. I just think it's the pinnacle of craftsmanship. It's exquisite. It is so beautifully molded. It is so consistently flavored. It's so delicious. Those guys just are absolute excellent craftsmen. And then I think the third would be, this was a hard one, but I wanted to, that was just like deeply chocolatey and maybe the Dandelion Cabo in Guatemala bar. It just tastes like an Oreo. It's this luscious, deep chocolatey bar. It's so simple. It's two ingredient chocolate, you know, 70% cacao and is just a bar that I would probably survive on (laughs) for months at a time for the trip to the cosmos. Those would be my three. That's great. Well,
0: now it sounds like you're in California for the next uh, foreseeable future. So you have dandelion much closer to you. But it's good to know what you would take way forward in the future, because we need you on this planet for all of your trailblazing activities and, and relationship building. So again, Emily, it has been an absolute honor to have you on. And I'm just so excited with where you know we can all support one another in the next few months, years and so on.
1: Awesome, Lauren. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. And I am so grateful for the work you're doing to convene everyone and build this community. It's so important. I'm so excited for the fun and the adventures and the just collaborations that are going to keep happening through the work that you're doing. So thank you so much for all that you do. And it was such a joy to talk to you.
0: Very much appreciate that. And I couldn't do it without all of the groundwork that you've laid. Kudos to you and all of the women in chocolate, certainly, that will be hopefully part of the podcast in the future and also the men that that do the work too. Thank you, Emily, for being well-tempered and thank you for tuning in. A few hours after this episode goes live, the results of the Good Food Awards will be public. Check those out to see the winners and which bars and confections won featuring uncommon cacao's beans. Then go to weekendchocolate.com forward slash podcast to find show notes or vice versa. Who am I to tell you what to do? Well-Tempered is produced and edited by me, Lauren Hynek. Intro music and closing song, Chocolate Store, is by Anna Garcia. If you're still here and you can't get enough of hashtag Women in Chocolate, please consider joining our second Mujeres Milagros retreat in beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico, this June 10th through 14th. Myself, along with co-hosts Sophia Ray of Projet Chocolat and Tamara Lavalla of Batchcraft, are looking forward to another fantastic retreat with wonderful women in community. Until then, stay well-tempered.
2: One morning when I was a child, my mommy asked me with a smile What you will be when you get older The only thing I had clear is just to make this place A big woman She looked at me and with her voice says she answered, If you want to make